your Bibles, uh, open them up to Psalm 94, which we read a little bit ago. <clears throat> it's, um, it's fitting, I think, that uh, we are going to talk about a psalm this morning. Um, as Rob mentioned, the questions um, God's justice and righteousness in a society on the weekend after almost 50 years that uh, Roe versus Wade was finally found to be unconstitutional. Uh, it brings a real poignancy to a psalm where the writer is saying, how long? Um, psalm 94 is amongst the royal psalms. Some wonder why. Uh, we heard Paul Hurst preach about Psalm 93 last week, uh, the Lord reigns, He is robed in majesty. Uh, his throne is established from old. And then next week, I think Matt's going to be doing 95. Look at that one. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. So in the midst of these royal psalms, we have this one. Oh, Lord God of vengeance, rise up. Smack them silly doesn't quite seem to fit with the theme, but I think it does. The psalmist is addressing a society that is decidedly not being governed by God's rules. And in a real way, I think I, I, I hope to, to show you that the situation here um, is actually a little bit worse than the one that we face in their context. Prayer of vengeance. Life is not as it was expected to be for this psalmist. He's struggling. Um, he's wondering what's going on. And he's asking God for a number of things here to address the questions that he has. So let's break the psalm down and try to understand what's going on here. And, um, and hopefully... Uh, Hopefully I can find the, where's the little clicker thing? There it is, right in front of me. Sorry about that. <clears throat> um, we, can, we can find out how, by breaking it down, make it something that we can think about and meditate on and even pray through. There we go. So Psalm 94, whose throne endures? In the psalm right before, uh, it said that God's throne is established from of old, verse 2 of Psalm 93. And we'll see the claim in this psalm about a very different throne. And that, that throne there is a pretty majestic one from one of the dynasties in India. Uh, whose throne gets to endure? Now, the outline that I'm going to give you here oops, is an outline that's simply broken down by noting the change, the vacillation between, the God, uh, between a prayer to God and a speech to others. So in verses 1 through 7, we see uh, the question, how long? 
made uh, in verse 3. How long are the wicked going to stay in ascendancy? How long are they going to exult over us? And it's a prayer. And then in verse 8, you can see that the prayer switches to a speech, and he is addressing the dullest of the people. I'm pretty sure that's not God he's talking about. He's addressing the very ones that he was praying about and for the wicked who think that God does not see, God does not perceive. And so he has this speech there in 8 through 11. And then in verse 12, he's back to praying, isn't he? Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord. And, and the ESV has, has broken it out. If you have that version in front of you, notes that change too. And that prayer runs the whole way through verse 21. And then, for the last two verses, it changes to a declaration, a speech about God being his stronghold and his refuge, and that he will repay the wicked. It seems that uh, what's happening is that God's people are being oppressed here, that in their society, um, the very people of God are being treated very poorly by the wicked rulers of verse twenty. Uh, they frame injustice by statute, so they're using the laws to actually oppress God's people. And the psalmist is really struggling with that. His feet are slipping, he says, and that's in verse um, uh, 18. My foot slips. This is not how it's supposed to be. This is not how God promised it to be. What, what is happening here? Does God know what's going on? Because the wicked are saying that he doesn't. Does he care what's going on? And personally, the psalmist is saying, what about me? I, I'm struggling. How can, this, how can this be happening? Who are you? Why should we follow a God who says that it's going to be one way and it's not that way? Are you really who you say you are? And so this psalm is a, is a visceral uh, expression of a guy, and, and he's not, his name is not given to us. We don't know who this is, but, but it's a visceral expression of a guy who is struggling with the very nature and fidelity of God. Can we trust this guy who's made all these promises, and yet look at what's happening in the world around us? Is he even relevant? Is God even relevant. What about his promises to the people? That's the first question that he has. What about your people who are being trampled down, crushed in verse 5? So what about the, your promises to your people? But then in verse 16, what about me? Individually as one of the members of, of your people, because I'm struggling too. I'm trying to believe you, but it's not easy. And so he brings these two questions. What about your promises to your people? And what about me and my struggles with what's happening? And there's a cry for God to make it right. O oh God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up. And there's a cry for God to minister to him. To be his help. To be his consolation. To be his refuge and stronghold. So how do we live? In the midst of abuse of power, how do we live where it doesn't seem like God is keeping his promises? That's kind of the point 
of the psalm. And as I read this, it seems that this psalm is a very close sibling to Psalm 73. In Psalm 73, which is a powerful psalm, I highly recommend you read it, Asaph is going through the same things and says very similar things, but there it's not about the abuse of power, it's about money and and shalom, the, the peacefulness of life. And Asaph in Psalm 73 struggles because the wicked have the wealth and the ease of life, and they oppress, and they are having the shalom that it seems God had promised to his faithful people. Both psalms view the arrogant, wicked who rule and oppress. Both psalms talk about uh, the practical atheism that we see here in verse 7. The Lord doesn't see, the God of Jacob doesn't perceive. We can do what we want. He doesn't know what's going on. Both psalms address that, that that's how the wicked see things. Both psalms say that mankind, and especially the wicked, are just phantoms. Or in verse 11 here, they're a breath. That's the same word that's used in Ecclesiastes for vapor or or vanity. They're just a mist. Psalm 103, where the grass that is here today and gone tomorrow. Both psalms have the writer's feet slipping nearing the point of just leaving the faith and the covenant altogether. Both psalms have the wicked who oppress and boast, arrogant words, boasting in verse 4. Both psalms end with the affirmation that God is their refuge. And both psalms talk about the exalting, the the word in verse 3, how long shall the wicked exalt? That word is almost always used of the righteous for their joyous exalting in the Lord. And so here it's this ironic, almost bitter. They are experiencing what the righteous are supposed to have. So you have in Psalm 94 something that's very close to Psalm 73, only there it's money, here it's power. What do we do when there's the problem of evil? Well, the psalmist is going to tell us that God knows and God acts for his people, both now in the meantime and in the end. He can be trusted to act now and in the future. There's a dichotomy in the psalm because it has wisdom elements, and wisdom always presents two ways to live, right? There's the wise way and there's the foolish way. And so we have... God on his throne, that's kind of the the bulk of the psalms around this, that God is reigning and God is the God who, who is the king. But then if you see in verse 20, um, can wicked rulers be allied to you? Now, I'm not sure why that got translated that way, because what it actually is is what's on the screen. Can a throne of destruction be allied to you? And so we got two thrones, don't we? We've got competing thrones. We've got God's throne as the ruler. And then we have the throne of destruction. The wicked ruler who is framing injustice by statute, he's using the laws to, to do his own thing and actually oppress God's people. Whose throne is going to endure? Can God be trusted to rectify this? What's going to happen here? 
And as we look at our society and we say, why? We realize that the psalmist actually was struggling with a situation that was even a little bit worse. We, we look at our society and, and we can rejoice about Roe versus Wade. But we still look at the injustice, and, and there's human trafficking. And I've heard estimates that there are more slaves in the human trafficking thing than there ever were before the Civil War. Now, incredible injustice. But, but we realize that our society has many godless people in authority. This wicked ruler is God's anointed. He is one of the people, if you verse, verse 8, O dullest of the people, that's the people of God. So this wicked ruler is probably one of the Davidic kings that we read about who was bad, kind of like Manasseh is the poster child. He was the worst of them all. He was so bad that God said, that's it. I will not relent after this guy. Judgment is coming. So one of these reigns, these people are abusing the very throne of God's king. That's the person who's oppressing us. I think that's why the psalmist is struggling so deeply because that in, in Psalm 2, that king is called the son of God. He's like, that is my man on the throne. And here he is, thumbing his nose at God. Everything in this psalm is described as attacking God and his covenant. He's oppressing the people of the covenant. He's using God's legal system that he set up to do it. And, and it's not a mistake that he says in verse 6 that they're killing the widow and the sojourner and the fatherless or the orphans. Those were the people, if you remember when we talked about social justice in, in, in our uh, E412 class, those are the people that God was especially concerned about. He says, listen, you were off in Egypt without hope and and." aliens and i came and saved you and so you treat these underclass the way i treated you and the psalmist is saying these wicked rulers this wicked king is actually targeting these people as an affront to god and so the very structures of god's people that were supposed to to convey and 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 bring god's value to them are being abused I think that's why the psalmist says my, my foot was slipping. How can God be faithful in such a context? It's his inheritance. You see the word heritage there in verse 5 and then again in verse 14. It means his inheritance, the word there. These are his people that, that he has bought for himself. And they are being oppressed. They're being crushed by these boastful, arrogant people. I think the biggest clue, though, is verse 7. The Lord does not see. That in itself, he's using the divine covenant name, the name that Israel was, was to know God by. That might not be as decisive in itself, because we would say uh, Allah does not see. We would use his proper name, right? But look at the next line. The God of Jacob does not perceive. That's pretty specific, isn't it? No, I, don't, I don't want you to, to think maybe I'm just talking about any God. I'm not using the name Lord generically. I mean Yahweh, our God, does not know what's going on. 
It's a practical atheism. And uh, the atheism that we deal with today, which is a, a materialism that says that what we see is all there's ever been. What was uh, uh, Carl Sagan's statement? The cosmos is all that there is, ever was, or ever will be. They didn't really deal with that so much back then. This is a practical atheism, and one that is much more dangerous to us as believers, because we can be tempted to say God doesn't matter. He doesn't know. He's irrelevant. That's what they were doing. We can do what we want, because ultimately, God doesn't know. He doesn't care. He's not relevant. And the psalmist has to deal with this context, and it's troubling him deeply. So he responds to that by saying, actually, there's a wise, verse 8, there's a wise way, and verse 12, there is a blessed way. If you want to go with the throne of the established king, that's going to be the wise and blessed way. It's against the foolish and an arrogant way of this wicked king and his administration. Competing thrones. Two ways to live. And it expresses then the cognitive discord in the psalmist's mind. He's seeing the context around him and he's saying, they're claiming that God doesn't matter and it appears that they're right. And yet, and yet, your throne is established, O Lord. What's happening? And so he prays there in verse 2, Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. Give them what they deserve. And then at the end you see in verse 23, He will bring back on them their iniquity. What the psalmist prays for, he becomes convinced of that God is going to repay them for what they deserve. So let's note a few things then from the psalm, that, that context of a psalmist who's struggling with what's going on, wants to God to um, bring clarity for him on how he's going to treat his people, and then how he's going to help him um, with verses 16 through 20, 23. The first thing is that God's vengeance is justice and not anger. When we think of vengeance, uh, well, maybe, maybe I should put it personally. When I think of vengeance, I think of revenge, an angry, give them what they deserve type of thing. And that's not what the psalmist is asking for here. This vengeance is a kingly responsibility. It is the king's responsibility to make things right. And that's actually what this means. God of vengeance. God of giving people right recompense for what they've done. Repayment of wrongs committed. Make this right, he's saying. God of vengeance. You are the king. And that's why I think it's in the royal psalms. You're the king. This is your job. Rise up. You're the judge of the earth. Correct this situation. Set things right. 
And you can see him respond to this in verse 15. He says, for justice will return to the righteous. It's, it's actually better, justice will return to righteousness. God is going to bring those two back together. He will make things right according to his covenant, according to his promises, according to how he wants his world to function. He is going to make it right. And the, the upright, the pure in heart, are going to follow that. They will rejoice in his justice brought back to his righteousness. And so God, the God of vengeance, is going to make things right. He did that, of course, in Christ, but Paul still says in Romans 12, he says, don't avenge yourselves. Allow the God of vengeance to do that for you. He can do it with justice. He can do it with measuredness. He can do it with propriety. He can do it with full Knowledge is the omniscient one. Vengeance belongs to God. A divine vindication of how things should be. And the psalmist says, this kind of vengeance belongs to God. And he asks him then to do it. And that's, that's where the, the statements out of verses 8 through 11 come from, is responding to that idea that God is not a God of vengeance, that he doesn't know what's going on, that he can't see, that he doesn't perceive. And the, and the psalm says, you, you fools. An argument from the lesser to the greater. Are you, are you telling me that the God who made ears can't hear? Or the God who made eyes can't see? Or the God who teaches and disciplines his people doesn't understand the minds and the thoughts of these transient vapor people who are here today and gone tomorrow. It, that doesn't even make sense, he says. Of course he's going to make things right. Of course he knows what's going on. It's foolishness to think that he doesn't see and that he doesn't perceive and that his vengeance is not coming. His correction of the society is not going to happen. It's silliness, he says. So God is going to make things right. It's not going to be an angry, vengeful, irrational, although it will involve his wrath. He's not happy about it. But it's not a knee-jerk reaction. It is the king making things right according to his promises and his righteousness. And along with that, then, the second thing is that God knows the plight of his people. He knows what's happening. He knows what's happening in our society. He knows what's happening in each of our individual lives. That's the point of those verses. He sees and knows. He knows our thoughts. And in verse 14, he's not going to forsake his people. He's not going to abandon his heritage. He's going to keep the promises that he has made in his word to his people. He, just as he disciplines and teaches the nations in verse 10, he's going to discipline and teach his people in verse 12 in a much more pointed way out of his word so that we can understand him and what he's doing. He knows what he is doing in our lives and in the lives of the world, our society and even the world around us. And then in the second line of verse 13, the, the psalmist gives us an incredible clue. He's going to teach out of his law, 
to give us rest from the days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. It's a horrible image, actually. But what he's saying is the grave of the wicked is not yet dug. It's not time yet. The pit is not fully dug, and so God is teaching and disciplining and giving relief, but what the time of his movement has not yet happened. The time where he stands up, rises up, and stands for his people there in verse 16 has not yet happened in its fullness because, the, because he's patient and the pit is still not finished for the wicked. There's still time for them to repent. There's time for us to endure. And so the psalmist says, God knows the plight. Don't be fooled by his apparent inaction. He knows what's going on. The next thing is that God is going to set things right. He knows, and there will come a day of reckoning. There's an interesting passage in Revelation 16 where... Uh, it says that there's souls under the, th the altar, I think it is, in the throne room. And they say to God, how long? The same questions that are asked here. How long until you avenge us and our blood on the people who put us here, killed us? And you know what the Lord's response is? Here's a white robe. Put it on. Be assured of who you are. And wait a little bit longer. It's not done yet. And so even though we're in a very different context, which we'll talk in a minute, in a minute the grave is still not quite ready for God to appear and bring the full weight of His justice and His vengeance. How long is still just a little bit longer, but be assured of who we are the white robes given to us in Christ. And so God's plan is set to happen, but it's set to happen, the writer says, in His timing. He knows. And His apparent inaction should not be mistaken for not knowing or not caring or not being involved in our lives. It's a horrid image that the pit is not yet dug for the wicked. Judgment is coming for those who resist God and His salvation in the Lord Jesus. It's not a very popular thing to talk about or believe. But it's all through this psalm, isn't it? Look at the end. For him, the psalm ends with the promise that God is going to wipe them out. There is going to come the day of reckoning where God is going to bring about His justice. And those who resist to the end are going be in that pit. But God is going to um, answer the psalmists in our question of how, how is he going to bring this about. The psalmist looked for it in the future, and so do we. The passage in Revelation, there's still going to be that final moment, but there's a very important and remarkable step along the way. It was future to the psalmist, but it's past to us, and that is this. The judge of the earth did come to be the judge, didn't he? The judge of the earth has arrived. And it's so interesting, the choice of the Spirit's words there in verse 2. He became the judge of the earth by rising. 
It is when he rose up from the grave. The sermons of Peter in Acts 10 and the sermon of Paul in Acts 17 say that it was because of that resurrection that he became the judge of all the earth. He becomes the one whose righteousness now becomes the standard by which justice is meted out. Jesus took on all of this wickedness, all of this sin, all of this arrogance, all of this affront to God. His death was sufficient to pay for all of that. So that any who would come and bow before Him as the King and the Savior could be given the life and the glories of God Himself through Jesus. God has brought righteousness by justice. And He did it at the cross and the resurrection. The prayer here to shine forth is a, really a, a theophany, to appear, come, show your glories, and rise up exactly what Jesus did in dying and rising for us. His righteousness bought for us the chance to know God, to be in relationship with Him. The knowledge that justice will be done and that He will appear again, won't He? Revelation 19 tells us he's going to show up on a white horse just to the sword of justice from his mouth and it's going to be utterly horrible. Salvation needs to be proclaimed because of that coming day. Well then lastly, we see that in the meantime God knows the plight of his people and he helps them. This is the psalmist saying, what about me? I was slipping away. I was losing my faith. I was anxiety-ridden. The cares of my heart was burdened and unable to bear up under it. In Psalm 73, Asaph has a change of mind when he goes into the temple and he sees the presence and the glory of God. And that's a very, very important thing, the, the presence of God in our lives. But in this psalm, I think the pivotal moment and the pivotal element seems to be God's Word, that God teaches and instructs out of His Word that the upright in heart are going to follow His justice and righteousness expressed through His Word, that... The psalmist needed to know it and be consoled by it in verse 19. How are the cares of his heart going to be lifted by God's consolations? What are God's consolations? And how do we find them? And I think it's that teaching and that discipline. That God disciplines us as his children using the very difficult times that are around us to mold us into his image. And so as the psalmist looks out over his world, whatever was happening in his own personal life and in the society, these cares and these burdens and the anxiety and the, the fears and, and the suspicion that God wasn't keeping his promises are laid by God, by his steadfast love and by his consolations by the relationship that God has shown. Now, how, how did he find that? That's my question, because I would like to have some of that. I wouldn't mind a, a, maybe a double helping of those consolations. 
Maybe you're the same. And I think it's in His Word, but if I can be so bold, that's just kind of a Sunday school answer, isn't it? I'll just read the Bible. But how, how did he read the Bible that he was consoled by it? How did he read the Bible, the steadfast love? And so as I was thinking through this, he says the law, that's Torah, instruction. I think it can apply to all of God's Word. But just for fun, I was like, okay, if he just read Moses, how would it relieve the burdens? How would it convince God, of, convince him of God's fidelity? How would it resolve the tensions that he was feeling as he looked out over society and he looked at his own heart? What would he have, have read? And here's a few things. He might have read Deuteronomy 8, where God says, I have brought you through the wilderness and all those troubled because I wanted to discipline your heart. I wanted to create in you who I want you to be. I was a father disciplining you as a son. And then, and then Moses writes something fascinating. He goes, I mean, I'm paraphrasing this, obviously. He goes, did you ever think about why your clothes never wore out for 40 years? It wasn't because they were really well made by the Egyptians. It was because I provided for you what you needed while I was disciplining you to make you into what I, I wanted you to be. And in the psalmist who is sitting here in troubled times, he realizes, wait a minute, he's doing the same thing. These troubled times are to mold me into who he wants me to be, and the provision is there. Your steadfast love hasn't changed. Maybe he read the promises out of Leviticus 26 or Deuteronomy 28 and 29 where God says, if you follow me, I will bless you, and if you don't, I won't. And he realizes that God stays true to that. And his steadfast love is to those who follow him, to the upright in heart who will follow his righteousness and justice. He hasn't changed from that. His heart begins to become consoled. He realizes that his place in the storyline of the Bible isn't so far different. And our place, even as we look back on what Christ has done for us, we await the final removal of all troubles and struggles and injustices. We're kind of in a similar place, aren't we? Much better because of Christ. But we're trusting in what God has done in Jesus and awaiting for Him to return again. Maybe he read Deuteronomy 12 or Deuteronomy 10, where it says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to fear me and to walk in my ways and to love me and to serve me. This is actually the verse out of Deuteronomy 10 that Micah then refers to in, in uh, 6.8 where he says, um, what does the Lord require of you but to love and serve and walk with your God? He's actually quoting Deuteronomy. And, and everything belongs to God, he says, and yet I have given it to you. And I, God says, I set my heart in love on you. As a father, I chose you as the offspring. And the psalmist is consoled, not just simply by reading God's word, but by reading God's word and understanding that God has not changed, that what he said then, he means now. That these ancient words actually speak in a very present context and that God loves and cares 
and disciplines and molds, and it's always been through difficulty. It always will be through difficulty until Revelation 19 when the Son returns to set all things right. Or maybe he read that most magnificent of stories in the Old Testament of the children of Israel being delivered out of Egypt. Seven times in the opening chapters of Exodus, it says God remembered his promises to Abraham. After 400 some years of slavery, God remembers his promises and he says now is the time to act. Where is the psalmist in those days? Where are we in those days? And the psalmist realizes it's the same. God acts the same. We might be in the generation and when he moves and returns, we might be earlier in that time where we wait until he moves. But God remembers his promises and in his timing he will act and we can trust and know. And the psalmist has seen God's steadfast love in his law. He sees it happening in front of him and he realizes that the throne of destruction will not endure. God's throne will. His promises will endure. His methodology has not changed. His steadfast love remains. His consolations are there to cheer us and sustain us and make us realize He has not forgotten, that He is our refuge in our stronghold, that nothing happens to us, that He does not plan for us in order to discipline us. It was true in Deuteronomy. It's true in Psalm 94. It's true in Romans 8 where Paul says that that's what God does, working everything together to mold us into the image of Jesus. And he ends then with this confident statement, you are my refuge. The world may be crumbling around me, Psalm 46, the, the, the mountains may be cast into the sea, but you are the refuge because you do not change. And that means then that he is going to bring vengeance, he is going to repay the sin, the iniquity back on the wicked. And he's going to wipe them out. Because there's only two ways to live. With God or opposed to him. And so this psalmist who almost lost his faith gives us a powerful statement of God's fidelity and his trustworthiness and his righteousness that has come to its fruition in the Lord Jesus who, who paid for it all so that we might have his righteousness. We might have an uprightness in heart that the psalmist could only dream about. Washed clean and robed in the righteousness of Jesus. God's promises and his reign will endure through the judge of the earth, the Lord Jesus. Lament turned to refuge, hope enduring in the face of seeming chaos. The judge of all the earth has risen. With healing in his wings, I believe it says. He has brought righteousness now that we can experience the children and the sonship and of God adopted into his family. And he will bring a full and frightening and forever justice and righteousness when he comes again. Our hope is secure in our refuge. Even though we may look around our society like this psalmist 
and be tempted to have our feet slip. We can be secure in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this great word that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. That you have brought all of your plans to the apex of Jesus, the judge of all the earth who paid for sins and then can give righteousness to those who trust in him. That our context is very much the same and we can find you as our refuge and our hope because of your faithfulness to your promises in your Son. May we trust Him. May we find our consolation in Him and in your Word as you've explained it to us. May we find you as our refuge in days of trouble. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please continue on praying and thinking through this psalm for a few minutes before our closing song.